Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is Bobby McKenzie, visiting fellow with the Brookings Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World, part of the Center for Middle East Policy. Before coming to Brookings, he served as senior advisor for countering violent extremism at the U.S. State Department and has also worked in Middle East and North Africa issues in the private sector and in academia. Today, we'll discuss the Syrian refugee situation and solutions. Also, stay tuned after our conversation to hear my colleague Bill Finan's interview with the authors of a new Brookings book, The Consequences of Chaos, Syria's Humanitarian Crisis and the Failure to Protect. Bobby, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here, Fred. Thanks for having me. I'm reminded of the podcast uh, that we did a few months ago with you and uh, Kutaiba Idlibi, who was a Syrian refugee, and that was a really powerful, powerful episode that I, that I hope listeners will go and listen to. I, I hope so, too. So let's talk about the current situation in Syria. Describe this current situation with refugees in Syria, the Middle East, and generally. Sure. The, the scale, the scope, and the complexity in Syria uh, of the Syria crisis is staggering. Nearly half a million have lost their lives. Uh, 13.5 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. 6.5 million people are internally displaced. Nearly 5 million uh, Syrian refugees are in neighboring countries, namely Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. And hundreds of thousands um, made their way in 2015 to Europe in search of uh, refuge and rights. Well, I understand it's more than half of Syria's population is, has now been displaced, either internally or abroad. Correct. It's incredible. Um, and also, this is part of just a larger global uh, crisis in refugees. It's, I understand it's the largest uh, number of refugees globally since the end of World War II. Correct. In 2015, there were 60 million displaced persons worldwide. Um, in 2015 and 2016, uh, there are, uh, the number has increased to 65 million displaced persons worldwide. But I do think it's important to recognize that while these numbers are large, uh, they're staggering. If, if the crises are broken down by region, they're manageable. And I think it's important not to be overwhelmed by the numbers. Bobby, last summer we saw a lot of news about Syrian refugees desperately trying to get into Europe, crossing the Aegean, crossing the Mediterranean, uh, many of them uh, dying in the process. Do you expect a repeat of that scenario this summer? The, the short answer is no, but we're going to have to wait and see. Um, in 2015, uh, Syria certainly was the key driver of forced migration to Europe, um, but there were also refugees coming from Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as um, uh, individuals fleeing um, Eritrea and even poverty in Kosovo. Um, but there... But as a response to uh, the crisis in 2015, there have been a number of uh, action-forcing uh, events, namely the EU-Turkey deal, um, which has stemmed the flow. Um, it's a controversial deal, um, but it certainly has made a difference in terms of uh, um, stemming the flow of refugees. Um, there was the Syria pledging conference in London in February, uh, where a record $10 billion was pledged to help uh, frontline states. Um, UNHCR held a high-level meeting on global responsibility sharing. Uh, for pathways of admission for Syrian refugees, so thinking about other ways to get Syrian refugees into third countries. So, for example, Brazil has taken uh, a number of Syrian refugees, and Brazil is a, a non-traditional uh, resettlement country. There was the World Humanitarian Summit in late May that also um, looked at these issues. And in September, we have two major events. Um, UNGA is um, hosting a high-level meeting on refugees and migrants. It's the on, UN General Assembly. Yes, the UN General Assembly is hosting a high-level meeting on refugees and migrants um, on September 19th. And the following day, uh, President Obama um, is leading a summit on refugees as well. So um, 2015 certainly focused the international community's attention on, uh, on the refugee crisis. 
Just real quickly, what was the EU-Turkey deal that you talked about? Yeah, the purpose of the EU-Turkey deal was very controversial. It was between Brussels and Ankara. It was designed to stem uh, the flow of refugees by sending back the majority to Turkey. And it certainly gets into a, a number of prickly questions about rights. Um, refugees um, have the right of movement, and the international community is supposed to respect those rights. And so there's certainly been a lot of controversy around the deal. Let's turn to a series of, uh, of analyses and a big event that you just spearheaded, called it Rights and Responsibilities, Solutions to the Syrian Refugee Crisis. First, what rights are involved here? Sure. I mean, namely, under the 1951 Refugee Convention, a refugee has the right to safe asylum. International protection uh, comprises more, though, than just physical safety. It's, um, it's dignity. It's the ability, um, freedom of, of uh, movement, freedom of expression, freedom of torture and degrading treatment. And this also begs the question, um, is the EU-Turkey deal respecting those rights? Because um, refugees are not um, – they are deterred in a very uh, um, serious way from making their way to Europe. What about the responsibilities? What are those? Well, the response – the international community has a responsibility to provide protection to refugees, but also to identify durable solutions. And namely, that's local integration. Um, that's repatriation. That's voluntary repatriation um, at the time when refugees want to go home. And the third uh, durable solution is resettlement to a third country. But it's worth recognizing that um, less than 1% of the world's refugees will ever be resettled. So most refugees are in frontline states. Bobby, we've heard a lot about the burden on these frontline states, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon. What do those nations need in order to continue to cope with refugees? Well, first, it's worth just putting the numbers in context. Um, Lebanon, a tiny country of, of 4.5 million people, hosts more Syrian refugees than the whole of Europe. Um, and so Lebanon has a, a million refugees. Um, there are 650,000 Syrian refugees in Jordan. There's 2.7 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. Um, so it, it's overwhelming. Um, the frontline states um, need greater development aid, and in part, this is to ensure that we're not only providing assistance to refugees, but we're also providing assistance to local host communities. What we want to avoid is sowing discord between host communities and refugees, um, and I think that's an important point that the international community is certainly addressing as we move forward. And uh, last summer, we saw that Greece was bearing much of the challenge uh, in Europe as refugees were arriving there from Turkey and North Africa. And now it seems that Italy is preparing for an influx of refugees. If, if this is the case, what does Italy need to do to prepare? Sure. I mean, Italy is, is definitely um, uh, the next uh, frontline state in, in terms of European states. And there is over a half a million migrants in North Africa looking northward. Um, this situation is only complicated by the fact that we have a major crisis in Libya as well. Um, so we have the potential to see uh, migrants and refugees coming from the Horn of Africa, from West Africa, and now also from North Africa. And so I think that we need to think long and hard about how can we, in a, in a humane way, um, try and respond to the needs and rights of refugees and migrants, but also recognize that a country like Italy, um, you know, they will have a, a certain amount of capacity um, to which they, um, they can't exceed. And whereas a lot of the Syrian refugees are displaced by civil war, a lot of the North African refugees are displaced for economic reasons in addition to conflicts. Well, yes, in some cases, but perhaps in Libya, maybe not, right? And so in terms of applying for asylum, 
one needs to demonstrate a well-founded fear of persecution. So one could be coming from Egypt, for example, given the current uh, circumstances there, and still have the right to apply for it. They would have the right to apply for asylum. Um, they would just have to demonstrate um, their case. All right. So something we haven't thought much about before, and that's the role of European cities, European metro areas in dealing with refugees. Bruce Katz and Louise Noring in the, in the series Rights and Responsibilities. Talk about this issue. Can you briefly describe what that's all about? Sure. Bruce Katz is spearheading a, a new project that looks at European cities and the ways in which they absorb and help integrate refugees. Uh, the focus is on uh, Germany and Sweden. Um, Sweden in 2015 took in 163,000 refugees. Um, that's almost equivalent to 2% of their population. That would be the same as if the U.S. were to take in 6 million refugees in 2015. The U.S. has only taken and 3 million refugees in total since uh, 1975, just to put these numbers in, in perspective. So um, Bruce Katz is really interested in the ways in which local governments are responsible for providing housing, education, and jobs uh, to new refugees. Um, he's interested in, in sort of networks of universities, of philanthropic organizations, of a whole range of local actors, and the ways in which they are trying to help refugees. Um, one example um, that's worth noting in terms of the private sector, when we were in Sweden, um, we spoke with uh, some folks at LinkedIn, and they on their own are spearheading a fantastic project to try and um, help refugees uh, pair with um, uh, corporations that need um, need certain skill sets. And so it's one example on a very local level um, where, um, you know, cities are, are finding, are identifying solutions and trying to help. With all of the pressures of European refugees, I mean, of refugees coming into Europe, um, you've seen uh, deals like the EU-Turkey deal, you've seen uh, more borders being closed in what's supposed to be an open continent, open European Union. Do you think European unity is under strain, or even under threat from this refugee crisis? There's no question. Uh, I was in Europe a month ago, and this was something that I heard in, in three different capitals, that there is real concern that the migration and refugee crisis is pulling Europe apart. Um, Jessica Brandt writes about this in, in her um, blog piece entitled A Pivotal Moment for Europe, where um, she refers to this as an, as an existential threat in the eyes of some European capitals. Now, with uh, half of Syria's population being displaced internally and even externally, uh, it's generally thinking about um, the paths that refugees take. Do you think many of the millions of these displaced Syrians will actually be able to return to Syria? Not in the immediate future. I think even if there were peace today, um, even if there was a political process today, uh, millions of Syrian refugees would remain in, in the in the frontline states, um, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. Um, bear in mind that many of their cities have been completely destroyed. And so in many cases, there's, there's nothing to go back to. But this brings up an important point, which I, I certainly hope comes out or comes through in the blog series and certainly uh, came across at our forum last week. Um, you know, the situation is, is manageable, but we have to have responsibility sharing and we have to think about how can we help these Syrian refugees get home. Um, but in terms of getting home, we have to think about their immediate situation. And so that means ensuring that refugees in Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey have access to, to labor, have access to education, 
um, and they have access to other public goods, but, but with some emphasis on education because we want to make sure that those who um, would go home and help rebuild the country actually have the skill set to do so. And this means ensuring that Syrian refugees aren't languishing away for the next five to ten years. So if we, if the international community would like to see Syrians go home, as many Syrians would like to, um, we have to work, work towards that. Now, you hosted a public forum uh, a few months ago that included a number of Syrian refugees on the panel talking about their perspectives and their ideas for solutions, one of whom, as I said earlier, Qutayba Idlibi, was with you uh, on the show for a podcast episode. What about uh, engaging with Syrian Americans uh, on new ideas for the refugee crisis? Sure. I wrote a blog piece um, on that very topic last week uh, for this series. And and in it, I argue that the U.S. government and large um, international NGOs should be engaging Syrian Americans, particularly Syrian American leaders who are running a range of nonprofits that are distributing hundreds of millions of dollars in and around Syria. Um, These folks, as a result of of the uprising, have established um, uh, a number of nonprofits, and they have deep expertise on what's going on. Um, They understand the nuances of uh, the politics on the ground. They um, can identify where the needs are, and they have a voice uh, that matters. And I think that they should be at the table to not only talk about how can they implement, because they are implementing partners, but I think they should be at the table to talk about design and to talk about policy. And I don't think that the government, our government, is doing enough on that front right now. And I'm hoping that that's going to change. So do you think that that we have a moral obligation to refugees in general um, and in specific when it comes to Syrian refugees? I, I definitely think there's a, a moral obligation to protect refugees. There's international law that requires us to do, to do so. But in terms of uh, Syrians, um, I, I would be... Uh, reluctant to privilege one crisis over another. Having conducted my own doctoral research in Cairo and looking at urban refugees that were there from the Horn of Africa and from the Great Lakes region, I interviewed hundreds of Burundians and Rwandans who had survived genocide and genocide-like activities, and under no circumstance would I ever want to privilege um, uh, one crisis over another. But uh, I do think that there is an obligation for the U.S. to do more. I think there's an obligation for the international community to do more. But we get back to this this issue of responsibility sharing. Um, It it certainly is uh, not lost on me that certain um, European states have, um, you know, Germany, Sweden, Hungary, they've taken an an enormous amount of refugees. Um, A million refugees arriving in in 2015 in Europe seems like a, a large number, and it is. But if you compare that with the 500 million people who live in the European Union, you're talking about one person per 2,000 um, if there's real responsibility sharing. But there's not. Bobby, is there uh, one thing about this crisis that you think isn't getting enough attention? Well, I would say that the situation is manageable if it's managed. Um, and I think we need to recognize that we talk an awful lot in the U.S. and Europe about resettling refugees. But the fact remains that 1% of the world's refugees will be resettled uh, in developing countries, in developed countries, excuse me. Um, So we need to be thinking more about how do we provide support to refugees living in frontline states. We need to ensure that refugees have access to rights, that refugees have access to labor, to education, and public goods. I think that 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 ought to be the focus. But the only way to do that is if there is real responsibility sharing. Bobby, I want to thank you uh, for your time today, and thanks again for being on this podcast. Thank you for having me. 
You can find the recent materials about Syrian refugees on our website at brookings.edu. And now over to Bill Finan, who talks to Beth Ferris and Kamal Kirishi, authors of a new Brookings book on the Syrian refugee crisis and its overwhelming challenge to the international community. Thank you, Fred. And hello to you both, Beth and Kamal. In your book, you call this, the Syrian crisis, the most daunting humanitarian crisis of our time. Can you describe the enormity of this crisis? Well, maybe I'll start. First of all, there's the sheer number of people who are displaced. You know, half of the population of Syria is now displaced. No prospects of an end to the conflict, which would enable people to go back home. So it's the most daunting crisis because there are so many people who've been displaced, because prospects are so grim for solutions, and thirdly, because so many of the Syrians are moving to Europe, translating uh, this crisis into a global one, if you will, a way not just one for the Middle East. When you say half of the population of Syria, how many is that? There are about 4.8 million refugees, perhaps 7 million internally displaced, so a total of close to 12 million people. Maybe one thing I could add Mm -hmm. uh, to why this is so daunting is also the level of destruction. Syria was very much a middle-class country with cities and towns, hospitals, schools, decent housing, uh, when you look at it today, it looks a bit like Germany at the end of the Second World War. I think that aspect is very significant too. And the destruction has now been going on for a longer period than the Second World War. We are into its sixth year. Mm -hmm. And only yesterday, yet another uh, hospital or a building right next to it was uh, attacked and bombed. That, that leads me to this question then about what what is the typical profile of the refugees who are leaving Syria and or even those who are internally displaced? Is is there a typical profile, or is it cut across all through society? I think it cuts across all through society. The, the initial wave of people who left were those who had the means to leave. They tended to be more middle class, more educated, perhaps to have relatives or possibilities in other countries. But as the conflict has dragged on, all sectors of society have been affected. You have religious minorities. You have people who've been persecuted. You have single young men. You have families. You've got professionals. You have agricultural workers. It's it's just across the board now. Are there entire families? Oh, indeed. Oh, extended families, if not sometimes villages and whole communities having to to flee. An entire community will just get up and leave? Eventually, eventually, in uh, in installments. And we saw that happening during the uh, European migration crisis uh, as well. Mm -hmm. How much does it cost to, to leave the country in general? It really depends on whether or not you need to use smugglers, how open the roads are, how, you know, right now, frankly, all all the borders are closed, virtually closed. A few official openings from time to time from Turkey, but the borders are essentially closed. So the only way to get out is through smugglers, illicit means, through regular migration routes to join family somewhere and then moving on. It's it's very complicated. And we've, we've heard a lot of families, you know, taking all of their savings to pay smugglers or others to help them get out of the country. Where they're going in, on, on, through land routes then is Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan. Those are the three main Lebanon countries. Lebanon and Jordan have closed their borders since so basically not. 2014. And Jordan is only letting in people who are in really dire needs and need immediate hospital 
of hospitalization and atten uh, attention. Uh, Lebanon has pretty much stopped taking refugees for political reasons and internal balances between these different ethnic and sectarian groups. In the case of Turkey, clearly, as Beth pointed out, the door, the border is not as open as it once uh, was, a policy that the government used to be very proud of. And instead, we have now makeshift refugee camps within Syria near the uh, Turkish border that themselves uh, attract attacks on, on themselves. Oh, and then there's Iraq. I mean, there are about 250,000 Syrian refugees who've gone into Iraq. But Iraq also has massive internal displacement, mostly Kurdish populations in the northern part of Iraq. But Iraq frequently is forgotten when we look at the refugee crisis in the region. Right. I noticed you noted in the book there's millions who have left Iraq in the last right. four to five years, too. And, and where, where are the Iraqis generally going? Is that... Europe, Europe okay. but also the United States has resettled considerable numbers of Iraqi uh, Iraqis and they are there's a great large population in Turkey as well as in uh, partly in Jordan leftovers from the uh, earlier crisis in Iraq I mean, the Iraqis, you know, fled to Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. The sad story is really an untold story are the, the Iraqis who fled to Syria and were then displaced again. There are a lot of Iraqis in the region who have more or less settled down. They're kind of under the radar. They're not going to go home. They're going to adapt to their societies, but they're not recognized and usually don't have an official legal status, which makes them very vulnerable. The, the Syrians, just to go back to the refugees, just to go back to them a moment, what percentage of those who are fleeing to Europe, and then we read about like last week where nearly 1,000 drowned, what percentage of those who are fleeing to Europe from northern Africa are Syrian refugees, do you think? I think the, the overall figures are about half, for, at least for this year, 2016, about half are Syrians and other half a mixture of 50 or 60 different nationalities. But the more you move towards North Africa, or Libya is this new route. Now that the route between Turkey and Greece have pretty much been closed, uh, the, uh, the route between Libya and Italy is livening up. A larger proportion of those who try to make it through across the Mediterranean tend to be African. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of uh, the Aegean Sea, there were more Syrians amongst them. But we will see if now that the Aegean gateway is closed, whether Syrians are going to try to make it through Libya. And the price for that route will definitely be much higher than the one through the Aegean. What is life like in the refugee camps, say, on, on, on the Turkish side for, for refugees? Uh, well, in Turkey, it's important to remember that only 10% of the Syrian refugees live in camps. The camps are wonderful. They're very modern. The, the Turkish government, I think, has done a great job at setting up camps. They're still camps. I mean, nobody really wants to live in camps. But for the 90% of Syrians who aren't in camps, they're really living on the margins of cities. Some are living with relatives. Most are probably renting accommodations one way or another. Some sleeping in parks. You know, as, as time goes on and resources run out, I think we're going to see more and more desperation among those Syrians who aren't in camps, who are not receiving assistance, whose savings have run dry and are getting pretty desperate. You, you write in the book that uh, these refugee flows both um, into Europe and also worldwide are part, part of what you call a mega crisis. 
And you make the point that Syria and those mega crises are, as you write, a clear sign that the international humanitarian system can no longer cope. What exactly are the signs that it is no longer able to cope? Well, the numbers have become very significant. In the book, we do also refer to a UNHCR report from 2014 that flags out there are 60 million people who who were displaced that particular year, and refugees are only a small proportion of it. While uh, these numbers keep increasing, the amount of funds that are available for budgets to care and manage these crises are shrinking. So two things are happening at the same time. Competition for funds are increasing, but at the same time, available funds are diminishing. And during the research for our book, we also discovered how donor countries, Western donor countries, are increasingly moving funds from out of developmental projects budgets into humanitarian uh, assistance. So in the longer run, the, you, you're in a way opening the way to further uh, crises of a humanitarian nature if funds are not available to reconstruct communities and encourage development. And, you know, one of the really sad things I think we're seeing now is the knock-on effect of the Syrian refugee crisis, where, for example, last month the Kenyan government said, well, we're going to close two refugee camps with 600,000 people and send them all back to Somalia because the funds are being shifted from Kenya and other places with long-standing displacement to try to respond to Syria. You know, and so, you know, when Europe talks about it has a refugee crisis, the impact on governments like Kenya or Lebanon is, is a little bit difficult, you know, to comprehend. You think you've got a problem. Well, Lebanon, 4 million people. We've had 1.25 million refugees here for five years, and nobody's shown us the kind of attention that Europe is now demanding. You, you, the book is a, is a compelling look at just the enormity of the crisis, both both um, in Syria but in, and just in the terms of worldwide too. But you also have a solution that you propose or, or, or a way toward getting toward a solution, and that's uh, the new global approach for Syria. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think what we need to, to do is to step back and really look at this in a comprehensive way, to look at, you know, solutions in the region. You know, what would it take for people to be able to pursue jobs and education and make fresh lives for themselves in the host countries? More assistance perhaps different types of assistance are needed for host communities. Development actors such as the World Bank and others have shown signs of stepping up. I think much more could be done there. And this has to be coupled with a robust push to address the causes of the conflict to resolve these, this terrible war that's displaced so many people. Yeah, one important aspect of addressing that is this really nice slogan that we've come across is to help refugees help themselves. And uh, be, uh, behind this message is the notion that, that host governments have to help refugees to integrate into the societies and communities they, they exist. And in all fairness, the UN has a budget that aims to support this. Uh, by also uh, channeling funds into boosting the resilience of uh, communities where the uh, refugees find themselves. And the idea is precisely to try to fund 
education for refugees, but also to try to open up the labor market for refugees so that they can stand on their feet. The two are very much interrelated with each other. If refugees don't have access to labor or uh, uh, livelihood opportunities, they keep the children uh, away from schools and force them into illegal labor and exploitation. Exploitation. Would you say that the international community has has failed the refugees? I think the international community has failed in stopping the conflict, preventing the conflict. Um, in terms of failing to meet the needs of the refugees, you know, certainly those needs aren't being met. At the same time, the international community has put so much money into dealing with Syrian refugees. It's hard to say that it hasn't tried. I mean, certainly the effort has been there. It's just not enough. We need a new model. Yeah, when you go to cities like uh, Amman or Beirut or Gaziantep in uh, southeastern Turkey, you, with your own eyes, see the pres presence of the international community. UN agencies are there, large international NGOs are there, local NGOs are there. There is an effort there. Mm -hmm. It's a, you could even call it a buoyant uh, effort. But those efforts are not matching the needs that exist out there, and that's the challenge. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to talk about the book with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Bill Fine, and Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelai, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can also send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.